Well, good morning. I'm sure some of you are thinking, what in the world is that guy doing back up there? Uh, we laid him away two weeks ago. I uh, feel a little bit like Esau. The author of Hebrews says, he being dead yet speaketh. Uh, <laughs> but I, uh, I really want to thank you again personally for that uh, wonderful send-off two weeks ago. That was so, uh, it was, I'll never forget it. There was just so much warmth and affection and love, and I really appreciate that time. And I don't know how many of you know it, but uh, your gifts made it possible for uh, some people here in the church to purchase a uh, 17-foot fiberglass McKinsey-type drift boat for me. And... Uh, I've been working on my oarman ship, uh, working on uh, running class two and three whitewater. <laughs> and uh, next week, if the weather holds, I'm going to take it out of the garage. <laughs> <laughs> Carolyn and I just got back from two weeks over on the West Coast. Uh, we met with some dear friends of ours from seminary and from early years of ministry, Carolyn described it as a summer camp for seniors. We uh, we just had a great time. We spent a lot of time in the Word together and reminiscing and praying together and encouraging each other. And then one of the members of that group has a condo down in Brookings, Oregon, and Carolyn and I went down there for a week, and we had some time just to spend thinking about uh, what God wants us to do through Idaho Mountain Ministries. The problem, as I've said before, is not what to do, it's what not to do. The uh, opportunities are legion, and uh, we need to uh, get God's focus on how best to spend these years ahead. Take your Bibles, uh, if you will, and turn to the second chapter of Ephesians. This is, of course, uh, Palm Sunday, that uh, day in which our Lord uh, entered Jerusalem to receive the praise of the crowd, the same crowd that later cried, crucify him, crucify him. Next Friday is that day we call Good Friday. Uh, It's an odd description to put to that name. That was the day on which our Lord died. But what made that day good is the fact that he, on the cross, conquered sin by becoming sin. He conquered death by dying. As Samuel Gandhi puts it in an old hymn, he made sin, sin, or through, and death by dying slew. That's the odd paradox of Good Friday. Uh, He put death to death by dying. He did away with sin by becoming sin for us and dying for us. That's what makes Good Friday good. Now, Uh, I have discovered over the years that it's easy for me to take the cross for granted. I often teach on the subject, I read on the subject, and I find that it gets to be too familiar. But uh, this passage, as I was looking at it this past week, brought something in focus for me that I've not seen before in the cross. I thought of those uh, pictures that uh, are now so popular that look like pink or blue or yellow dots. And they seem to not make any sense at all. There seems to be no design or purpose to them. But, And the harder you try to see what's there, the less you see. But if you 
if you relax in an unguarded moment, a picture comes into, into view. And that's what happened as I read through this, through the first ten verses of chapter two of Ephesians. Something, a picture emerged that I'd never seen before, a, a new vantage point, a new way of looking at the cross. And uh, perhaps you'll see it uh, as well. Let me read the first ten verses of uh, Ephesians 2 for you. And you being dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Or as Wycliffe translated that phrase, by grace you have been made safe. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk uh, in them. Now uh, you can you can readily understand what Paul is doing in this in this uh, section. He's contrasting two conditions: the condition that we experienced before, and the circumstances in which we find ourselves now, as a result of the. Uh, of the cross. The uh, chapter actually begins in the middle of a sentence. Anyone who knows grammar realizes that you normally don't uh, start uh, a sentence in this way. Paul says, and you. And we wonder what the uh, referent to the you is. Now, uh, the chapter divisions, as you know, were, were, were placed in the Bible much later than the text itself. When Paul wrote this letter, it was just one long extended letter without chapter uh, divisions with no versification. And as I have mentioned, Paul is inclined toward long, complex sentences. And this is a case in point. This particular sentence actually begins back in verse 15 of chapter 1. And the odd thing about the you is that it actually is a, is a direct object. Now if you can, if you can remember your grammar, if you can think back to grammar school or uh, whenever it was that you learned English grammar. Direct objects are the objects of, object of a verb. And the tough thing is to determine where the verb is that uh, culminates in this pronoun. Well, it, it, it occurs all the way back in verse 20, where we're told that God raised him from the dead. Paul's argument goes like this. God raises, raised Jesus from the dead and you. As you know from last week in chapter 1, Paul is talking about our inheritance in Christ. That word inheritance is a wonderful term. 
You have to go all the way back into the Old Testament to define it. In the Old Testament, it's the word that's used to describe the land of Canaan. That was Israel's inheritance. The little piece of land that every Canaanite was given. It was a land, as the Lord described it, a land flowing with milk and honey. It was descriptive of all the good things that God had in mind for his people. Now, the writers of the New Testament took that word and and translated it into all the good things that God has given to us. We don't have a land today that we cherish, but uh, all the goodies, all the good things that God has given to us are handed over to us in Christ. That's our inheritance. And we have that inheritance, as Paul puts it, because God is powerful. So powerful that he raised Jesus from the dead. He died a real death. He became fully human. And one of the characteristics of human life is that it comes to an end. It dies. Our Lord himself bore all our sins in his body on the cross. That explains that uh, so-called cry of dereliction from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of our sin was placed upon our Lord. And uh, because our Savior became sin, the Father withdrew from him. He turned his back on his own son. He walked away from him. And for the first time in his life, our Lord endured the agony of being abandoned uh, by the Father. Uh, when he was in the garden, we're told that uh, he became very, the King James translation puts it heavy. He became very heavy. It's a good description of what happened. It's actually, the word is actually a word from which we get our word domicile or house. It means to be homesick. The word literally means to be away from home. Our Lord began to be very, very homesick because the Father had abandoned him. And uh, in that state of utter, total sin, he went to the cross. But The father didn't leave him in the grave. He raised him from the dead. And you. What Paul is saying is that we were in Christ. It's as though we were placed in him. It's not as though. It is true. We were placed in him. We were buried with him. We were raised together with him. And he's contrasting those those two states. Now, uh, Paul begins his description by saying, you were formerly dead. And that raises the question, what does he mean dead? In what sense are we dead? Look around you at the world. and There are obviously people there that don't know our Savior. and They seem to be very much alive. They seem to be enjoying life. They seem to be getting the most out of life. Many of them are prospering financially and Physically, they, they don't look dead at all. What does Paul mean when he says they were dead, they are dead, and that you were formerly dead? Well, he's going to tell us in the verses that follow what he means by, uh, by, that, uh, by that death. We formerly walked, verse 2, according to the course of this world. In other words, we were dominated by this age, by the the way the world thinks, by the mindset and the lifestyle of the world around us. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air. And they're dominated by the spirit, he says, that now rules the children of, 
of disobedience. It's the devil, the evil one. And we indulge the desires of the flesh. And so what Paul is saying is that our death centers around the fact that we are dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, that's hard for people to recognize because we seem to be so free. Um, we say, I did it my way. Well, what Paul is saying, no, no one does it your way. You're ruled and dominated by the world and the flesh and the devil. And in that sense, Paul says, you're dead. Bob Dylan puts it, stone cold dead when I came out of the womb. We're born in that condition. Now, we need to define these terms. What does it mean that we're dominated by the flesh? What is the flesh? Well, the flesh is a, is a term in the New Testament that's used in various ways. It's used of our Lord. For example, we're told that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Does that mean he was tainted with sin? No. He did no sin. He was without sin. In him is no sin, Scripture says. Theologians say he's impeccable. He is without sin. He is the Lamb of God without spot and without blemish. And yet he is made in the likeness of sinful flesh. On the other hand, we're told that the works of the flesh are, are obvious. There are things like fornication and greed and pride and malice and temper tantrums and those things. So what, what does Paul mean when he, when he talks about the flesh? What is it? Well, the flesh is what we are apart from God. It is our bodies and our personalities. It's what we are, as Dylan says, when we come out of the, out of the womb. It's our essential humanity. Now, apart from God, there's something radically wrong with that with that entity that we call flesh. It has a it has a perversity to it. There's a twist to it that always inclines us away from away from God. No matter how much we want to we want to do what's right, we find ourselves doing. The wrong things. We make resolutions, and we we can't uh, we can't follow through. We we want to give ourselves in, in loving acts to our spouses and to our children, and we find ourselves acting uh, selfishly. Now, Augustine described the flesh as that in us which is curved in upon itself. We want to reach out, and we find ourselves. Wanting to grasp, to acquire, uh, to be acquisitive, you see. And, uh, it's what drives us into self-pity and, and self-indulgence and all the other permutations of the self-life that we, that we hate about ourselves. And the problem is we can't do anything about it. There's, there's no law that will change us. Our, our wills seem to be utterly inoperative. We're powerless. Let me read something that uh, Eugene Peterson uh, wrote in his translation of Romans 7. Paul says, I'm full of myself. After all, I spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what's best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. There ought to be a law, we say. Perhaps what I need is some law to correct me. 
but I need something more. For I know the law, but I can't keep it. And the power of the law of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions. I need help. (laughs) You ever feel that way? I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me every time. And may I tell you that age does not help. Age doesn't cure the problem of the flesh. Uh, John Wesley said, how foolish was my hope in vain that age would conquer sin. Harriet Beecher Stowe, in her book, Uncle Tom, has Uncle Tom say, how wicked I is. I was mighty wicked. Anyhow, I can't help it, he says. And that's what life is like for us. That's what the flesh is. It's that evil, pernicious, perverse nature, that tendency in us. To act contrary to God, to what we know is is God's will for us. To act contrary to our, our best intentions. Even though we may not know God, we may not know his word, we cannot even live up to our own requirements, much less his. It's the enemy within. It's like the Trojan horse that uh, uh, that invades against us as uh, that wise old Possum Pogo says we have met the enemy and he is us. Now, the second uh, uh, entity that, that invades against us is the world. Paul says in verse 2, you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Now, what is the world? Well, it's not the world of created things. It's really a, a mindset that we find all around us in the world. It's an attitude of indifference toward God. It is the message that we, that we constantly receive from the media that, that you don't really need God. You can do it all by yourself. We find the, full, the, the more obvious manifestations of it in books that are obviously evil, but it also shows up in magazines like Reader's Digest and National Geographic and any number of, of other magazines and movies that on the surface seem to be very good, but it's that appeal to the self-life again. You see, the, the world is nothing more than a community of flesh-governed individuals. Uh, it's the flesh writ large. It's that same tendency to go astray and to live our own life and to live without God and to do our own thing written on a universal level and and it all invades against us every television program we watch every magazine we open we find those blandishments to to act apart from God to be your own person to to uh, to acquire wealth and power and and earthly wisdom and these are the things that that really matter Back in the 60s, Francis Schaeffer uh, used to say that in his mind, uh, the most pernicious movie that was making the rounds in those days, you'll never guess what it was. It was The Sound of Music. 
Do you know? And that's that's most of us still have that uh, video in our libraries, and we show it to our children. And he pointed out that scene where Maria was making her way to the house where she was going to uh, take responsibility for those children. And you remember the song she was singing? I believe in me. And that is the lie that comes right out of the pit. That's the lie that the world is constantly telling us. Believe in yourself. And that's the self-life again. Whether we're talking about indulging the self or acting out of this out of self, it's still that that inducement to, to live out of what we are apart from God. That's why I say the flesh is simply our humanity apart from God. And Paul says we're trapped. We're trapped. There's nothing we can do about it. The, the, the best way to realize how bad you are is to try to be good. The minute we make a decision that we're going to change our lives, we're going to be different, we discover that we can hold ourselves together for a few days or a few weeks, but then the whole thing begins to, to unravel. And then Paul says, behind it all is the spirit that is at work in the children of disobedience. That's the evil one, you see, who in the very beginning... Uh, flouted his rebellion against God, who determined to go his his own way. And what he wants to do is to take with him a host of captives, people who believe as he does, that you can you can be your own God. You don't have to have God. You can live your own life and find satisfaction. The joy comes from what you find between birth and, and death, and there's nothing more. You only go around once, so you have to go for all the all the gusto. That's his creed. And uh, he, he presents us day after day with that credo. You don't need God in your life. You have everything it takes to live life and to meet all of its demands. And Paul says, that's what dominated you. That was the motivating force in, in all of life. Now Paul says, that was our nature. That was our nature. Verse 3. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And notice the little word all. No one escapes. We're all. We were all that way. Theologians use two terms to describe our, our condition before Christ. They talk about our total depravity. And they talk about original sin. And by total depravity, they mean that sin touches us in the totality of our being. Every part of us, mind, emotions, will, body, is to some extent tainted with sin. If sin were blue, we'd be some shade of blue all over. Now, some people are, are more sinful than others, obviously so. But what theologians mean by that term is that everyone is tainted and touched to some extent by sin. No one escapes. The other term that they use is the word original sin, which means that we are sinful in our origins. That we come into the world like a baseball with a spin on it, and sooner or later that spin always breaks, and it breaks away from God. We come into the world that way. Now, you don't have to tell parents that. I mean, you, you, Parents know that their children are not innocent. You know, at first they begin to, to cry, and we respond to every, uh, every wail. And after a while, we begin to wise up. We start to get smart. We realize that we're being co-opted into their selfishness, that, 
that what we're doing is nourishing their pride and their, and their desire to be fulfilled and to use us. Oh, you shouldn't talk about little children that way. You say, well, I've had three and I have, I have six grandchildren and I've been around them and they're wonderful, beautiful creatures, but they're sinful to the core. They want their own way, see. That's the way we come into the world. Paul says that we're all of us that way by nature and we're children of wrath. Literally sons of wrath, Paul says. Now, sons of is a, is an old Semitic idiom. You find it all over the, the Bible. It's not obvious in some of our translations. In the book of Deuteronomy, for example, when someone was deemed worthy of, of being, being beaten, punishment, they're called a son of beating. In other words, they deserve the beating. That's the idea. Remember the story of David when Nathan came to him with that trumped-up story about the little lamb that that this man had stolen away from his pet lamb and stolen away from its master. And David, our translations say, that man deserves to die. Literally, the phrase is, that's a son of death. The phrase just means someone who deserves something. And, and in this case, the son of wrath is, is, a, is one who deserves wrath. And Paul tells us what that wrath is. It's not, it's not just hell. It's the fact that God just lets us have our way. He loves us enough to set us free. As C.S. Lewis says, he gives us that, that terrible freedom that we've demanded. We want to go our own way. We don't want God in our lives. We want to live according to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Then he'll let us go. And, and Romans 1 spells out the terrible progress of sin in our lives. Sin begets sin, and we sink deeper and deeper into depravity, and we're more and more controlled and dominated and and, and mastered by sin, and, and along with sin comes comes spiritual, emotional death. All the joy goes out of our life. Life becomes dull and boring and meaningless and and empty. Came across a poem the other day by a poet by the name of Paul Dunbar. I have no idea who he is. This is the debt I pay. He writes. Just for one riotous day, years of regret and grief, sorrow without relief. Slight was the thing I bought. Small was the debt I thought. Poor was the loan at best, but God, what the, what, what, but God, the interest, he says, the interest we have to pay. And people just come to the end of our lives and they're affluent and they're powerful and, and they have nothing. Life is empty and dull and they're left with restlessness and ruin. That's what death is. It means ruined human beings. I was watching the uh, surf over in Oregon one day and an old poem popped into my mind that I memorized while I was in college. I haven't thought of it in years. By the uh, cranky old cynic uh, Algernon Swinburne. It goes something like this. I can't remember all of it, but he says... He says, um, oh, just popped out of my head. From too much love of living, from doubt and free set, uh, from doubt and fear set free, I thank with brief thanksgiving, whatever gods may be, that no one lives forever, that dead men rise up never, that, uh, that surely the loneliest river runs somewhere out to sea. And I thought, 
what despair. What awful, awful despair. See, that's the ruin to which sin leads us. That's, that's the devil's doing. He's behind it all. He wants to blight and ruin and destroy. Jesus described him as a liar and a murderer. He deceives us into believing that we can be our own gods and we can live without God. And he murders us. He destroys us. Blights, ruins the quality of, of life. And then we die. And then we die, see? And Paul says, that's the way you were. That's the way you were. But God. Look at verse 4. But God. That's the turning point, see? What he's doing in this chapter is, he does it actually on two occasions. He's giving us a before and after picture. I remember the old Charles Atlas ads, you know, I used to read those, you know, and he was this 98-pound weakening, he'd get sand kicked in his face. And, and uh, along comes Charles Atlas and his exercises, and, you know, he can make a man out of you. I used to read those things, and I, I, I would have had to work a while to get up to 98 pounds, but, I, you know, it was a tremendous inducement there to send off for his wonder kit because it could do so much for you. And, Today it's the other way around, you know. It's Nordic track and slim fast and soloflex, and you get smaller and smaller. But it's before and after. See what he's doing? Before and after. This is the way you were dominated, captivated uh, by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Totally out of control. Okay? But God, oh, the resourcefulness of God, Paul says. But God... Being rich in mercy. Mercy is always for the helpless. Grace is for the worthless. Mercy is for the helpless. But God, being rich in mercy, uses a verb that suggests ongoing action. It's the way he is. It's merciful. Because of his great love with which he loved us. That's his motivation, see? There's no higher motivation. There's no other motivation in God than, than love. Ray Stebbin used to quote this uh, little poem that goes, How odd of God to love the clod that he made out of sod. Now, isn't that odd? <laughs> isn't it odd that God would love us? That even though we'd sold ourselves out to sin and, and, and to slavery to the evil one, doing his will, God still loved us, never never gave up on us, never turned his back on us, never stopped pursuing us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sin, made us alive. See, he got so tangled up in his argument, he had to go back and, and repeat it, because I think he was going to say in verse 1, and you... Who were dead, he made alive together with Christ, as you jump down to verse 5. But he started talking about what it means to be dead, and, and he sort of lost himself in that argument, so he had to go back and, and pick up the thread of the argument so he'd understand what he's saying. Do you understand what, what's going on here? Paul is saying, our Lord went to death, and he was buried, and he was raised again, and so were you. So were you. So that hell itself has no claim on you. The devil cannot get his talons into you. You do not have to be dominated by the world. You've been raised to newness of life. You've been transplanted from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his 
of his dear son. He's made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been made safe. Salvation means to rescue something. You've been rescued from the world, the flesh, and, and the devil. And raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what we ought to be thinking about this Easter when when that Sunday comes around. Yes, our Lord was raised and we celebrate his resurrection, but so were we. That's the point. We've been raised to a new life and seated with him in the heavenly places. Above it all, that's his point. We no longer have to be dominated by the world and the flesh and the devil. He said, well, but I still struggle against sin. Yes, because there is in the Bible this thing that is sometimes described as now and not yet. We do have what Paul calls the down payment of our inheritance, which is the Holy Spirit. He's the earnest of what, what's coming. And we will never be immortal, and we will never uh, get our, our personal lives straightened out fully until we see his face. But then, you see, we'll, we'll be everything that, that God has promised that we are to become, everything that he has envisioned that we will be, become. There will be progress in this life, and the progress will, will work toward perfection when we see him. We've been raised and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And notice the purpose in verse 7. In order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that salvation, he's talking about the entire process, the salvation that comes by God's grace, through our faith, the whole thing is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. He places the word, uh, the, the name, the proper name for God first in the sentence to emphasize it. It's God's doing. It's God's doing. It's not ours. Don't deserve it. Can't work for it. Can't achieve it on our own. It's already been done. It's a gift. All we have to do is receive it. Not as a result of works, that no one should boast, for we are his workmanship. We're his masterpiece. This word for workmanship is the word from which our English word poem comes. It means a thing created. We're his poem. We're, we're his, his, his wonderful creation. We're his masterpiece. Why is he doing all of this? So through the ages to come, people will point to you and they will thank God for the work that he's done in your life. He'll say, look at that beautiful thing that God has created. And it will bring glory to him. You look at yourself and you say, I'm still struggling with obsessions and compulsions and defeat. I lose my temper and I have lustful thoughts and I'm driven toward pornography and I lose my temper with my kids and and I struggle in my marriage to get things right and I'm defensive and I'm there are all kinds of things wrong with me. But one of these days we're going to stand before our Lord and people will look at you and say, look at that marvelous creation. Look what God has done. Look at the beauty of that masterpiece. And it'll bring praise and glory and and honor to him. 
Some of you know I build fly rods, and uh, that's sort of my thing to do to get my mind off everything else. And it's sort of like eating spaghetti. You can't worry about anything when you're eating spaghetti. And building fly rods, you can't, you can't think about anything else. And I, I, I just devote months to building these rods. And one of my greatest joys is to go fishing with some of my friends and pull out one of those rods and hear them say, Ooh, man, that's beautiful. Well, that, see, that, that's my pride. But with God, there's not one speck of pride. People will, will point to you in eternity and they'll say, Oh, that's beautiful. And we'll say, Well, I, I, I owe it all to Him. See, I'm here because of Him. And that will bring honor and glory and pleasure to Him. And what is it that motivates Him? Why does He do it? Is it because He has to? Not on your life. It's because He's gracious. He's gracious. It's all of grace. It's because He wants to. It's because it's his nature to be gracious. It's not because we deserve it. It's because he loves us. I came across, I have no idea who wrote this. I came across this uh, statement in some materials as I was filing things away this past week. It's just entitled Grace. After centuries of handling and mishandling, most religious words have become so shopworn nobody's much interested anymore. Not so with grace. For some reason, uh, not not so with grace. For some reason, mysteriously, even derivatives like gracious and graceful still have some of the bloom left. Grace is grace is something you can never get, but can only be given. There's no way to earn it or deserve it. Or bring it about any more than you can deserve the taste of raspberries and cream or earn good looks or bring about your own birth. A crucial eccentricity of the Christian faith is the assertion that people are saved by grace. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. There's only one catch. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you reach out and take it. And maybe being able to reach out and take it is a gift as well. And it is. Paul says the whole thing is grace. He's the one who gives us the faith to believe what Christ has done. Well, let's pray. Now, here in this, in these ten verses, you have the simplicity of the gospel. Paul is saying this is the way we all were. And then came the cross, which is God's way of telling us that he cares about us and that he could cure all averse ills. God, who is rich in mercy, raised his son from the dead, raised us with him to newness of life. It's a gift. It's not something you can earn. It's a gift. All you have to do is reach out and take it. If you've never done that, I would encourage you this morning to do so. To say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for raising me from the dead, giving me newness of life.
Would you pray that prayer? The dying thief on the cross could do nothing to earn his salvation but only look at Jesus and ask to be remembered. That's all we can do. And then for those of us that have made that decision to receive God's grace, we need to receive more of it. Because our tendency is to keep wanting to do something to deserve it or somehow to work ourselves back into your good graces. When we sin, feel that we have to do something to render uh, render God more gracious to us. We need to receive his grace, thank him for the forgiveness that's ours, and walk in newness of life and know that he's at work in us, the will and to do of his good pleasure. We are his workmanship, his poem, his masterpiece, that he is making of us a, a beautiful thing that will bring glory to him throughout eternity. Lord, we thank you for that. And uh, we give ourselves over to you. Put ourselves into your hands. Remember, Lord, the psalmist prayed, the work of your hands. Keep doing what you have to do in order to make us what you, from eternity, have planned that we shall be. We ask in Jesus' name.